Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. First up, Alice Kuzmenko reads her story, Lavender. From an age of just single digits, Alice Kuzmenko has penciled and published stories. It is a passion that, combined with her love of reading, has propelled her through her teenage years in various writing contests, including the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards. She has been published in various literary magazines, including Storgy, and was co-creator and editor of her school's online newspaper and literary magazine. Now, at 18, Alice is at university, studying English literature with creative writing. Her dreams of publishing a full-length novel have not yet faded, and will not until the book is in print. Aside from reading and writing, Alice is passionate about good food and exercise, as well as spending time with those that matter most. Alice's story, Lavender. Lavender. His face lacked proportion, though he wasn't unattractive. Lips too thin, forehead too thick, nose off centre. The sort of man who blended in until pointed out. Not, at first glance, a memorable customer, let alone someone to think about years later. It was a Sunday. I know because the always open door made room for echoes of next door's weekly pub lunch, a place which made self-proclaimed the best roast in town. Low grey clouds and a thin mist blanketed the car park. I was just off my lunch break and popped in a mint to mask the tuna wrap that lingered on my breath. Dad had pushed me into working at the local DIY store for the summer, put in a word with his colleague, the manager's wife. The store bustled with the bank holiday weekend, damp umbrellas spitting drizzle on the floor. Gemma, boss told me to take over the till so you can tidy up the shelves in aisle four. Says they're looking a little cluttered. Nick, my colleague, said. His lie was directed towards me, but his eyes were on a blonde girl in the queue. She's out of your league, mate. I winked and walked off. Aisle four, power tools, was devoid of the usual not quite middle-aged but still believing themselves young muscle men comparing chainsaws. A single customer, a man whose age lingered around the late 20s, paced back and forth. I'd seen him before, not enough to label him a regular, but working in a small town, shop, grants good face recognition. He looked up at me, or tried to, eyes dragged downwards by bruise-like bags. Sorry, what else the paint in? A crooked smile contrasted straight white teeth. Paint in aisle six. Here, follow me, I'll show you. He remained a couple of steps behind me as we walked, a position that made me conscious of the tight black trousers I wore. Any plans for the bank holiday? I asked. Finally getting around to painting the living room. His voice had an inbuilt echo to it. Good luck with that. It'll be alright, I'm a man, aren't I? He winked. The neck of a wine bottle balanced between the handles of a shopping bag hooked around his wrist. Its sapphire label matched the veins snaking his arms. I'm cooking myself a decent meal for once. What's on the menu? Chicken. He swung the shopping bag, oblivious of the wine bottle as it tipped back. Sounds lovely. Here you are, sir. The cans were of a uniform size, but the colours were not. Every imaginable pigment presented on the shelf. Will that be all? He stood with chin up and back straight, closer than a normal customer would, patted a palm over his gelled hair to make sure every piece was in its given place. The jet black strands clashed with a bourbon beard, stubble that ended mid-neck, not stretching far enough to conceal what looked like a scar, raw enough that his skin hadn't sewn together. I saw flesh. Could you help me choose a shade, actually? You look like you'd have good taste. 
The words were an excuse for him to tiptoe his gaze up and down my body. Uh, I'm not an expert. His glare was magnetic, the sort of man you wouldn't want to refuse. But I'll give it a go. What colour were you thinking? Purple. He leaned over close enough for me to both inhale his cologne, of which he wore an obnoxious amount, and swallow a breath of it. I suppressed a cough, blamed a shiver on the air conditioning. Right, over here then. Light or dark? Light. A lavender sort of colour. There was something about the way he ran his fingertips over the paint cans, a touch both light and heavy. It was then that I noticed the skull tattooed onto the back of his hand, extending across his knuckles to his fingernails, north. What do you think? Me? His eyebrows raised, pupils magnified as if to nod. I could do with a pretty girl's advice. Uh, my cheeks warmed beneath his microscopic look. I pointed at the first can I came across to redirect his vision. Lethal lilac. What a name. That'll look nice in the kitchen. Wasn't it the living room you were painting? For an instant, his face paled, skin talcum powder white. That's what I meant. Another wink. Another side smirk. Another precarious lift of the plastic bag. I could also do the paint roller and one of those knives for... for... Stripping wallpaper? That's the one, babe. At the end of the aisle, sir, he walked with assurance, but chose with little scrutiny, pulling the first items he saw from the shelf and slipping them into his back pocket. Anything else I can help you with today? That's a lovely necklace you've got there. A pause while his eyes skimmed for my name tag. Gemma. His swallow was audible, Adam's apple knifed through cling film skin, gaze flickered between my face and pendant. The lion-like stare brought pinpricks to my bare arms. I realised two out of three buttons on my polo were undone. He seemed like the sort of man who could unbutton the last one without using his fingers. I cracked my knuckles. Will that be all then? My mother has a necklace like that, he said in a cloud-like manner, words fuller than the airy way they were spoken. Beautiful, beautiful little diamond, like the rest of her. She sounds like a lucky lady. She's dead. Oh, oh, I thought you said... I didn't think... You're not wrong, though. She's probably luckier up there than she ever was down here. Some people get dealt shit hands. His voice faded into the memory I watched ripple across his face. A plant would liven up the room, don't you think? With a single surge, the wave changed. Sorry? Oh, of course, plants are all outside. You're not going to show me, Gemma? He possessed the smirk of a teenage boy. I could taste lemonade with a mere splash of vodka. Could hear bad pop music as I moved my lips to the rhythm of a boy who believed he could kiss. Just as I considered faking a distraction, I saw my boss meandering through the store, eyes menacing, flickering with a reminder of my customer service promises. Anything specific in mind? I remained a couple of steps in front of him. First, my lips and power walked, swerving to dodge strolling customers and the rain puddles they left behind. He answered with immediacy, but stretched out the syllables. Lavender. I spotted a pattern. There you go, sir. Despite the plant's similarity, his eyes examined each with precision, the way one would pick an outfit for their newborn niece. He stroked the lilac flowers with his palm. This one is... He inhaled for a second too long. Perfect. What do you think? I'm sure your living room will look lovely, sir. Perfect, he repeated. Exactly what I'm going for. His fingertips crimsoned as he gripped the plant pot, the sort of guy who approached everything with intensity. I hope I was helpful. Have a great day. His gaze fueled my walk back to the front of the store.
Open another till, would you, Gemma? Nick said he was just nipping to the toilet, but he's disappeared, my boss said. It didn't take perfect vision to spot Nick's predator smirk through the window, stepping a little closer to the blonde prey he'd served earlier. Cashiers possess a switch, one that flips the second the till opens. It's robotic, an automatic next please and have a nice day, mechanical button pressing and ripping off receipts. Customers blend into one another, faces become one. Next please, I said. Well, aren't I lucky? He leant over the counter a centimetre or two too close. Wafts of his cologne lingered. Would you like a bag, sir? Please. He tapped a grey lighter on the counter, a methodical touch rather than one of impatience. That comes to £21.99, sir. Sir is a great word. It's a pity more people don't use it. He pulled out his wallet, brown leather, and handed me the notes, two tens and a five. Thank you. Let me get your change for you. That's all right, babe. You can keep it. We don't have a tip box. Pocket it. My hands tensed. Have a lovely day, Gemma. My hands relaxed, coins bulleting to my back pocket. Good luck painting. I hesitated before adding, sir. Who needs luck? I didn't glance back to watch him leave. Instead, my eyes found the grey lighter on the counter. It felt heavy in my hands and stiff between the coins in my pocket. Next, please, I said with a second of delay. I'd heard the news on the radio at work, but Dad brought it up at the dinner table as well. He was an expert in talking about subjects that had no business being discussed over mouthfuls of lasagna. He didn't just stab her once. He went at it nine times. Nine! Mum and I dropped our forks in unison. Her fiancé found her lying on the bathroom floor. Although the radio presenter hadn't been quite as explicit, she'd added a detail Dad had missed. Police found a sprig of lavender woven through the victim's hair. It is safe to say that the incident has caused disbelief. Any leads from the public would be much appreciated. It wasn't him. It couldn't have been. Murderers are psychopaths, freaks of nature, social anomalies, outcasts with lightning eyes and thunder breaths. He was painting the living room, he said. Nothing out of the ordinary. A mere coincidence. Lavender was common, the store's best-selling plant. Who doesn't have a lavender plant in their house nowadays? Mum's was on the kitchen windowsill. The smell made me feel sick. He was a regular customer, a cookie cutter of a small town resident. Nothing abnormal at all. The case remained unresolved. A murder that morphed into a mystery the police still cursed themselves over, that waitresses and bus drivers and school teachers gossip about in their lunch breaks. Boss even warned Nick to tone it down, sick of his sinister theories, his details about the break-in and stabbing, his marvel at moves too calculated, too precise. It happened early evening. It's like he wanted to challenge himself, risk as many people seeing him as possible. A criminal who painted within the lines. I found the lighter when cleaning out my closet the other day. Seven years since the murder, and the object felt heavier somehow. Its cold metal, stained with his touch, burned my palm. His drumming it against the counter lullabied me into insomnia. My eyes closed, and the insides of the lids were tattooed with his crooked smirk and sharp jawline. I wondered if Cologne helped his scar heal. Did I misunderstand the guilt engraved into the coins when he told me to keep the change? Did he chew dry chicken while plotting meticulous steps? Or did he save dinner for afterwards to satisfy a worked-up appetite? My mind swapped wine for poison. I hoped scarlet drops charred his throat, rotted the line of his stomach and dissolved his body whole. A month ago, my boyfriend and I bought our first apartment together. Signed a contract we'd pretended to read, hauled boxes onto a fifth floor, no lift, 
moved into a place we loved despite its box rooms and low ceilings. The drip of the tap helped me sleep. How much discount do you get? We were leaning against opposite arms of the sofa, legs twisted into each other's. My summer job at the DIY store had stretched to a full-time placement. 15%, why? Well, this place is ours now and these walls are hideous. He wasn't wrong. Jagged brown stains peered through ripped wallpaper. We could paint them together. What colour were you thinking? His eyes danced over the four walls, squinting to fake interior design experience. How about some sort of purple? Light would look good. I'm not sure if he felt my legs numb between his, whether he noticed the memory moisten my palms and tickle my neck. I'm not sure I like the idea of purple. He came back to the store once. The aisles groaned with sale season. I zigzagged between shoppers seeking discounts, peered through shelves in search of normality, desperate to confirm his legs were regular and his hands were regular and his face, although somewhat misshapen, was regular. But my hands were trembling and I knocked over a box of screws and by the time I picked them all up, he escaped. Now, his face flickers through shop windows. An illusion of his assured frame leans against bus stops. He sits across from me in the waiting room of the dentist's office. An instant and he's gone again. A master of subtlety, a genius at camouflage. The sort of man who blends in until he points himself out. A human at first glance. Our second story today is called Flowers for Madame by Yermiahu Arun Taub. Yermiahu Arun Taub is the author of five books of poetry, including, most recently, The Education of a Daffodil, Preparing to Dance, New Yiddish Songs, a CD of nine of his Yiddish poems set to music, was released in 2014. He was honored by the Museum of Jewish Heritage as one of New York's best emerging Jewish artists, and has been nominated four times for a Pushcart Prize and twice for a Best of the Net Award. His short stories have appeared in JewishFiction.net, The Jewish Literary Journal, and Jewrotica. With Ellen Cassidy, he was the winner of the 2012 Yiddish Book Center Translation Prize for Oedipus in Brooklyn and Other Stories by Bloom Limpel. Please visit his website at yataub.net. Yirmiyahu reading his story, Flowers for Madame. Flowers for Madame by Yirmiyahu Aaron Taub. When Bela entered her room, she was pleased by its high ceilings and tall windows, as well as its distance from the bustle of the village square. There was a double bed and plenty of closet space, she noticed as she stepped further from the door. Bela liked to walk around a room when she first entered it, especially one in which she was planning to spend a considerable amount of time. You really could tell so much about a space by moving through it instead of just glancing around at it. Bela did not claim to herself or others to be an expert in feng shui, but she knew she had to feel comfortable with the energy points and flow throughout a room. Her daughter Fredel had reserved the rooms in this inn several weeks ago. Fredel assured Bela not to worry about the payment. They could figure all that out later. 
Kayla was pleased that Fredel's room was not adjoining her own. Its precise location would be determined only after Fredel's arrival. Originally, Fredel had wanted her own room to be near her mother's. She thought the proximity would be great fun, especially following a night on the town. But Bela managed to get Fredel to agree to take a room further down the corridor. She hoped Fredel would follow through on that commitment. Bela really did need her privacy, and Fredel needed hers too, or so Bela imagined, although Fredel had not mentioned anything about privacy or a need for it. Bela began to hang up her clothes, mostly light summer dresses, along with a few shawls and sweaters in the wardrobe. She packed lightly for this trip, or at least not as elaborately as she usually packed. This was to be a visit with few social requirements. In fact, no one knew either of them here. Fredel, who had lived abroad several times, seemed to know people in many of the main global tourist destinations. Or she knew people who knew people, who could provide introductions for them. It was always fun to meet other people, but sometimes Bela just wanted to enjoy the holiday quietly, away from her pressure-filled position as an administrative assistant at a downtown financial firm. Traveling with her daughter could be simultaneously stressful and exhilarating. After putting her clothes away in the wardrobe, Bela ran her hands over the surface. It was constructed solidly of oak, and the carving of a diamond motif in the corner was exquisite. It all appeared to be hand-done, as did the border tiles in the terracotta floor of the room itself. Someone had taken care with the room's overall design and furnishings. Bela was glad they weren't staying in a modern hotel with all the amenities and creature comforts. Of course she'd like to work out on the stationary bike or the treadmill in the morning and lifting light dumbbells every other day had eliminated much of the flab on her upper arms. But Bela wanted this trip to be different, truly restful, and away from the touristy areas, completely off the proverbial beaten path. And this inn, at least at this early stage of the visit, seemed to be exactly what Bela wanted. It was relatively small and located in a remote region. In fact, the driver from the airport was surprised when she informed him of her destination. She hadn't even been sure he knew the route. The bumpy ride over unpaved roads had done little to reassure her. It was only when he pulled up in front of the inn, which she recognized from the photographs, that Bela could truly relax. And relax she would. A sense of tranquility now pervaded Bela. Already she felt herself transformed by a wellness of being. Her meridians felt open to her, her chi centers in alignment. A breeze stirred the sheer curtains at the window. The late afternoon sun bathed the mustard-painted room in a golden-brown glow. She smiled, imagining herself to be situated inside one of the fried potato blintzes she used to make for her family so many years ago and which she desperately tried to avoid making in these waistline-watching days of late. Strange that such an image would come to her here, so far from home 
and when she was already feeling so relaxed. She would take a lavender-infused bath now. Surely that would dispel the carb and starch images. Mother and daughter met for dinner in the dining room, just to the left of the inn's lobby. Fredel hadn't realized how far the village was from the airport, or she would have arranged for them to ride together. Her ride over had been just as bumpy as Bela's, even if it was not as unexpected a tourist destination to her driver. Fredel looked quite travel-weary, in contrast to her own refreshed self. There was an air of fatigue about her. Clearly she hadn't changed from her travel clothes, which were shabby to begin with. Bela wondered if she'd even taken a shower or a bath. Additionally, there were bags under her eyes, and her curly hair, usually so carefully shaped, hung limply about her puffy cheeks. And had Fredel put on more weight? Bela felt that when one traveled abroad, one was representing country, not simply self or family or community. As such, one always needed to conduct oneself accordingly. Bela saw herself as an emissary, bringing forth goodwill and an eagerness to learn and share. Perhaps that was a bit self-important and grandiose, but that was how Bela felt. That new girlfriend of Fredel's was clearly not good for her, Bela thought. The one time that Bela had met her had not gone well, to say the least. Bela found the girlfriend to be unpleasant and controlling, dominating the conversation with meaningful glances and prolonged silence. What was her name? Sue? Sib? Sal? It was definitely one of those two-syllable S names with one syllable chopped off. Did it really expend that much more energy to say Susan or Sybil or Sally? Did the shortened form convey a greater intimacy? Bela tended to think not. She, for one, had never been tempted to call her daughter Frey. Bela remembered how relieved she felt when Fredel came out as a lesbian. Now Bela would no longer be the principal scandalous figure in the family. But her relief turned to concern and then unease over the years. Fredel's choices in women really weren't up to par. Sue, Sib, Sal was just the most recent in a long line of ne'er-do-wells that Fredel dated, each more marginal or even derelict than the previous one. One of them made a scene, sulking and shouting, after Bela asked her to smoke outside after dinner. Despite repeated scrubbing, that cigarette stain never did come out of the top Berber carpet, a talisman of an unpleasant evening and a cautionary note against poor life choices. Bela caught herself slipping into an appraisal of her daughter's presentation of self and her life decisions and arranged her face in what she hoped was an accepting smile. The meal of lamb and grilled vegetables was delicious. Wherever they traveled, Bela and Fredo liked to order separate dishes so that each could taste the other's food. Here, however, there was no menu at all, 
and the meal they were now eating was the only one offered. Bela only experienced this once before, when she went hiking with a friend in the mountains not long after her divorce. They stayed overnight at a similarly remote inn, only there the food was heavily fried and fatty. Despite the appetite she worked up from hiking, Bela was able to avoid the bacon and sausages in that mountain inn dining room, even as she wondered if the dishes she was consuming were cooked in pig fat. Ravenous, she wasn't able to bring herself to ask. Here, she had no such fears. The food was delicious and clearly quite healthy. Fredel seemed equally pleased with her meal. She devoured the contents of the plate even more quickly than Bela, only nodding her head in assent at her mother's exclamations of delicious and mmm. Fredel hadn't always had such a robust appetite or frame. In the months leading up to her parents' divorce, she ate less and less. With the drama of the divorce consuming her, Fredel was for Bela an ever-diminishing waif at the corner of her mind's eye. If years later the divorce seemed inevitable, that was certainly not the case at the time. A matchmaker had brokered the match between Shia and Bela with little fanfare. And the match back then was considered quite successful. Bela learned after the wedding that the matchmaker even boasted about it to some of her friends in the neighborhood. They only went on three dates prior to the engagement, and these were conducted in the dim lounge of a hotel. Bela had just turned 18 and barely knew what to ask Shia. Her conversation with men up to that point was strictly limited to her brother Izzy and her father, who spoke very little with her or her mother for that matter and a few other relatives. Altarbe sicha im isha, make not plentiful conversation with women, was the Talmudic dictum that governed her father's relations with the opposite sex. Her mother gave her a bit of coaching beforehand about suitable topics of conversation for the date. And yet the conversation between Bela and Shia flowed quite smoothly. They spoke of their studies, their dreams of living a year in the Holy Land, and of raising children in a household steeped in love of Torah and in awe of God. They also talked about the city's professional baseball team streaking to a pennant at the time, and their favorite flavors of ice cream, hers mint chocolate chip, his chamoka almond fudge, among other lighter topics. When Bela found herself at the chuppah, wedding canopy, less than a year later, she wasn't at all surprised. This was what she'd always wanted. She knew herself to be radiant beneath the veil, and the two of them to be a handsome couple. She still remembered the matchmaker's name, Mrs. Nissenson, Mrs. Malke Nissenson. Fredel asked to be excused from an evening stroll citing her exhaustion from the long trip. She had kept her promise of taking a room that did not adjoin her mother's, and seemed quite content, almost eager, to retire there for the evening. Walking alone from the hotel to the village square, 
Bela was enchanted by the clarity of the night sky. The stars were sharply outlined, the moon nearly fully formed. Still, Bela had to regularly look down to see exactly where to place her feet. The narrow winding streets of the village were paved with cobblestones, some jutting at unusual angles. She admired their charm and impracticality, and wondered how the villagers lived with them all their lives. Bela was glad she wore sensible espadrilles, and not the high heels which showed off her ankles still slim at age 61. A bench in the town square, not far from the central fountain, proved to be an ideal location for an evening reverie. Once again, Bela was pleased with the distance of her room and the inn from the square. She was surprised that the square was so busy at this hour. She saw couples of all ages walking along the square and then down the tree-lined avenues into the village. There were quite a few cafes lining the square, nearly all filled. Bela heard laughter and snippets of conversation, occasionally catching a familiar word or phrase. There didn't appear to be many tourists seated. Although she was only a few feet away from the cafes, Bela felt a chasm unfold between herself and the conversation and laughter. This, then, was the paradox of the tourist, she thought, yearning to be a part of the, quote, authentic, end of quote, local experience, yet necessarily unable to partake. Flowers for Madame? This question jolted Bela out of her door musings. A young man she judged to be in his early thirties, a good ten years younger than Fredel, spoke these words. Ordinarily, Bela would shake her head no at such a request, but there was something about the slightly melancholy evening and the young man himself that led her to nod rather emphatically. She didn't find him attractive, at least not conventionally so. His hair was cut very short, almost military in style, and his frame was rather lanky. Bela preferred her men somewhat more zaftig. Shia, even in his youth, had a naturally husky frame. But this man's eyes were so lively, and his smile was so winning in the lamplight of the square. Bela found herself smiling in return and pointing to white roses in the young man's cane basket. After they completed the sale, the young man offered observations about the night that was so bright and the air that was so clear. Bela nodded in agreement, noting his pattern of speech, slow and searching, not fluent exactly, but not broken either. Bela allowed him to search for the words, restraining herself from supplying them in her language, as she normally did when speaking with locals while on holiday. They each introduced themselves after the brief exchange. His name was Emmanuel. Bela usually introduced herself as Bella, but for the second time in this brief encounter, she decided to go against her precedent. She carefully sounded out the pronunciation, and then listened to him repeat it back several times. 
She waited for the predictable, fawning comment about how she lived up to her name, only it never came. After mastering the pronunciation, Emmanuel bowed slightly and withdrew. Bela watched him walk by other tables, complete several additional transactions, and then disappear around the bend from view. The next day was quite eventful. After an early, hearty breakfast, Bela and Fredel left the inn on their first hiking expedition. The concierge and the head waiter warned each of them separately as they came downstairs of the extreme heat predicted in the forecast. Both wanted to hike as much as they could before the sun was at its peak. Bela was surprised and pleased by Fredel's eagerness. Fredel ran a small spa that specialized in Swedish massage techniques and cleansing facials. Booking the clients, verifying that the supplies were on hand, and keeping the clients content kept Fredel busy six, sometimes seven days a week. As it turned out, the relaxation business was really stressful. Fredel tried to hire an assistant receptionist, but they turned out to be more harmful than helpful. They could never keep the booking schedules in order, regularly double booking some of her most popular masseuses. Fredel found it easier to do the work herself than delegate it to others. With so much pressure at work, Fredel had said that she wanted a vacation where she could just lay around in the sun, read some mysteries or doze. But just as she'd agreed to her mother's request for an out-of-the-way inn, so too did Fredel agree to a hike on the first day. Bela knew she was taking Fredel away from laying around in the sun, but she was glad to have the chance to catch up with her. The two exchanged gossip about their office while taking in the rugged, if unspectacular, mountain scenery of scrub brushes and desert, or at least arid, climate foliage. At least Bela thought it was a desert. Bela wasn't sure. In any case, dust was everywhere. Bela felt it seeping into her hiking shoes. And they really were shoes made for hiking, not gym sneakers and not hiking boots. Bela was pleased by their stylishness and practicality. Fredel also felt the sand seeping into her boots and suggested that they stop every now and again to shake it out. Fredel's spa was doing reasonably well, but the field was so competitive and she'd have to find new methods of increasing her visibility. The conventional methods of advertising seemed to have yielded few results. As administrative assistant, Bela's life was less uncertain and dramatic, but she enjoyed describing the various office personalities and their foibles, and the occasional office romances, rather than the work itself. Perhaps she embellished the receptionist gum-chewing, or the occasional touching she saw between several analysts at lunch or in the hallway. Fredel did seem genuinely interested. Bela was enjoying her time with Fredel and had enjoyed their get-togethers for these many years since her divorce from Shia. It had taken Bela and Fredel years to reach this state of even communication. The divorce was particularly volcanic, although the path leading up to it was slow and uneven. Bela couldn't pinpoint a day when she felt particularly distant from her affectionate husband. 
Sometimes she looked at the dining room table on Shabbos, the Sabbath, and reminded herself how much she did have a wonderful husband, healthy, contented children, a comfortable home. But she was running through a checklist in her mind. During the work week, she felt stifled in her role as mother to Fredel and her youngest, Dovbear. The routine of cleaning, cooking, mending, and tending no longer seemed enough. She felt at once restless and listless, edgy and enervated. Was this all there would ever be for her? And why was she like this? She came from a prominent, devout family. There had never been a tradition of rebellion in her long, carefully traced family lineage. Bela noted this in a family tree project she'd completed years before. The family tree was a source of great pride to Bela. She took care with it, looking up the spellings of the shtetlach, or small towns of her forebears, finding the titles and publication information of the books of the rabbis. She even interviewed relatives who shared anecdotes and lore passed down through the generations. If there had been rebels, surely she would have heard of them. The women in the family had not shied away from gossip before. So why this unease? She had refused to allow Bela to explore the possibility of salaried employment. He didn't want his wife to work outside the home, although many women in the community did just that. There was no halachic Jewish legal prohibition or even rabbinical injunction against it. Bela asked the rabbi directly for permission during one of their numerous meetings with him. She returned from these meetings trembling in rage and blasted Shia for his small-mindedness. His responses of, Don't I provide you with everything you need? And how can you be so ungrateful? Only further fueled her fury. Bela was grateful to Shia for his hard work and success in the diamond industry but her very life force was draining from her in the subdued, pious comfort of their home. After one such exchange, Bela threw dishes and cups at Shia. He easily ducked them and left the kitchen, ushering out Fredel and Dovbear, who had been staring from the shadows of the hallway, transfixed at the meltdown. Afterwards, Bela bent over the shards of crockery on the floor sobbing in despair. The children were split up between the parents. Fredel was a high school senior and chose to finish out the school year at Beis Yankiv, religious school for girls. She moved with her mother out of the neighborhood and commuted back in for school. Other than her considerable weight loss, the divorce had little observable effect on Fredel. In fact, she only seemed more driven to succeed. She was third in her class and earned a full scholarship to an elite private college up north. Dovbear refused to speak to Bela for years, and even to this day maintained only a frosty connection with her. At his own wedding, he asked Shia's new wife to walk him down the aisle alongside Shia. Bela seethed, unaccompanied in a corner of the room, since Fredel was sitting with other relatives. Dovbear's children accepted her gifts and overtures these days with politeness and disinterest. 
After they got back to the inn from their hike, Fredo went up to her room for a brief nap. She wanted a rest and then sit by the tiled pool in the back courtyard. Bela returned to the village square, curious to compare its daytime rhythms. She randomly selected one of the cafes and ordered an iced coffee, which was delicious. Today, Bela was not startled by Emmanuel, since he appeared before her in the distance and then approached, smiling. She invited him to join her for coffee. Emmanuel didn't drink coffee, but ordered an iced mineral water. The two sat in silence, surprising in its comfort, since they barely knew each other. Bela noticed the word two in her thoughts, and thought about the proximity and distance of the word two to the words both or couple. Of course they were two, and not a couple. And yet she found herself drawn by his ease and understatement, and his ready smile, not mysterious or pointedly charming, but somehow content, pleased to see and be with her. After Bela paid for the refreshment, Emmanuel walked with her back to the inn. As the days drifted by, Bela looked forward to seeing Emmanuel. They never made plans to meet exactly. Whenever she stopped in the square, Emmanuel would somehow always be there, or rather, would arrive shortly after her. Was he looking out for her arrival? Bela assumed he was, but never asked. He always joined her, sometimes drinking ice mineral water, sometimes sitting with her in their companionable quiet that was in such marked contrast to the volubility she shared with her daughter. Occasionally, when walking through the village's hilly, twisted alleys and streets, Bela heard footsteps behind her or saw Emmanuel appear ahead. He came to walk alongside during these jaunts, never trying to take her hand or link her arm in his. There was never any question of getting truly lost. The village was too small for that. But Bela appreciated the company, the sureness with which he navigated the hills and turns. When she stopped to admire bright red flowers in a pot outside a window or a door, Emmanuel smiled at her enjoyment. Bela knew from their first evening that Emmanuel's verbal skills were quite good. However, she found herself so relaxed, so at peace with him in their wordlessness. She knew she was headed into the realm of fantasy, a problematic one at that. The romanticized native, the colonized mysterious other. She had enough conversations with Fredel over the years and browsed enough of Fredel's college and then graduate school texts on post-colonial and feminist theory to become familiar with the tropes and language. Trendy jargon, Fredel now labeled it dismissively. Still, Bela didn't want to disrupt the mood they created with self-conscious, constructed silence or even with minimal words. One afternoon in the square, Bela invited Emmanuel to join them at the inn for dinner. Fredo had inquired about the nature of her mother's walks, and once even suggested jokingly that she would follow her mother one day. And so Bela decided that introductions were in order. Emmanuel readily consented. 
Bela left a note under Fredel's door letting her know they'd be joined by another at dinner tonight. She likewise informed the concierge. She didn't want Emmanuel's presence to surprise anyone. Emmanuel was already waiting when Bela arrived several minutes early in the lobby. They sat themselves in the dining room waiting for Fredel. As the minutes ticked away, Bela found herself touching her hair absently, anxious for the evening to go well. Bela told herself her concern was unfounded. She simply invited a pleasant man to dinner with her daughter and herself. Fredel couldn't fail to be as charmed with Emmanuel as she was. Fredel arrived and immediately apologized for her tardiness. The dinner went well. Fredel managed to draw Emmanuel out in conversation in a light, convivial manner. As it turned out, Emmanuel came from a large family. His father was in the municipal civil service. His mother was a baker by profession. Most of his siblings had moved away, seeking the greater opportunities of the larger city. Emmanuel preferred the slow pace of the village and wanted to remain close to the family particularly to look after his mother, who had a bad heart. Bela marveled both at the dexterity with which Fredel elicited these personal details without appearing to be fishing for information, and at Emmanuel's ease of response. In just one evening, she'd learned more about Emmanuel's background than on the numerous occasions she spent with him. After dinner, Emmanuel excused himself and left the inn. Bela went back to her room to bask in the success of the evening and prepare for bed. In her nightgown, she was surprised to hear a knock on the door. Fredel entered without Bela's permission and immediately launched into a tirade. Ma, what are you doing with this guy? He's half your age. Are you completely out of your mind? This is who you've been seeing on your afternoon walks? Can't you see that he's after something? That he's playing you? Or do you think you can just suddenly make yourself into a cougar? You think you can control the situation? I'm surprised to hear you say this, Fredel. I thought the evening went well. You seem to like him. What exactly do you think he's after? What is it that I have that he wants? It certainly isn't my money. You know very well there isn't much of that. I don't know, but I won't have you made into a laughingstock. This is outrageous. Fredel, you've said enough. Why don't you get some sleep, darling? Let's discuss this in the morning. Drifting off to sleep, Bela felt she'd handled Fredel's outrage as best she could. She hadn't said anything she'd regret the next day. Anything about Fredel's jealousy of the men in her life since the divorce, always finding something inappropriate in them, too old, too young, too rich, too poor, too effeminate. There were so many reasons why such and such suitor wasn't good enough for her sexy, eligible mother. Why should tonight and Emmanuel have been any different? Cougar? Really? Bela dismissed such claims as predictable and obvious, not worthy of the rigorously trained mind of her daughter, and the bond they worked so hard to repair and develop since the dishes and her marriage shattered on the kitchen floor so long ago. Breakfast the next morning was tense. Fredel ate her eggs with barely a good morning nod at her mother and quickly left the table. 
Bela finished her breakfast alone and exited the inn, determined not to let Fredel's outburst and moodiness spoil her day or otherwise get the best of her. She began her climb up the mountain trails that she and Fredel had regularly hiked together. She was surprised when Emmanuel asked if he could join her when she was about ten minutes into the hike. She wasn't surprised by Emmanuel's appearance, of course, but he had never appeared here on the mountain trails. Of course, she had never walked alone on the trails either, she realized. Their walk continued quietly along. Bela was sweating more than usual. When she realized that Emmanuel was leading her on an unfamiliar route, she wondered if the hike was more arduous. They still had to stop periodically so Bela could remove the dust and sand from her shoes. Emmanuel didn't seem to mind it in his shoes, or perhaps there was none. Was the day just hotter? After an hour, Emmanuel stopped Bela and kissed her for the first time, deeply, passionately, although with his hands at his sides. Bela responded with equal depth and passion. In this unfamiliar landscape, her response felt complete, without restraint. In her bedroom at the inn, Emmanuel's skills at lovemaking appeared almost mathematical in their precision. He kissed her body as if knowing her most sensitive points, even before her moans confirmed his intuition. Just below her nipples, between her breasts, her armpits, the nape of her neck. Instead of feeling awkward and bloated next to Emmanuel's slimness, Bela rejoiced in it, alive to its agility and electricity. She always preferred to be weighed down by men, to be enveloped by their size. Here, she felt herself open, vulnerable in her pleasure. The next day passed in a blur. Bela invited Fredel to afternoon tea hoping that the two of them could come to some sort of understanding. She didn't care about the appearance of things or what anyone thought. She just couldn't bear the tension between herself and Fredel. Only it was no use. Bela saw the verdict of herself reflected back at her from Fredel's eyes. A gigolo on the move, some thirty years her mother's junior, had unhinged her, and she, Fredel, couldn't seem to stop it. This trope, too, was not unfamiliar to Fredel and Bela, but Bela knew it was more than that. Here was her mother, the archetypal Westerner, unbalanced by the sun and white stucco and dust of the holiday. This figure was the floppy underbelly of the efficient colonizer, the one who failed to make do in the brightness of the colonized realm. She had deliberately strayed too far had taken the next step in the tourist's natural tendency to romanticization of the native, to something altogether unseemly. Bela saw all of this in Fredel's eyes, in the lines between her expressed incredulity, which didn't veer far from what she'd said to Bela after first meeting Emmanuel. Bela wondered if a Jew could be considered the archetypal Westerner, when so much anti-Semitic rhetoric over the years considered the Jew the Oriental or just the other. She found herself getting lost in reflections on discourses with which she had only a passing acquaintance, but which had somehow etched themselves into her mind. 
In any case, the tea was a disaster. The next morning, Bela saw Fredel, her bags packed, speaking to the clerk at the front desk. She was finalizing her bill and checking out of the inn four days earlier than they planned. Bela did not rush forward to try and stop her or even speak with her. She wanted to see if Fredel would notice her and reach out, but Fredel didn't. As soon as the bill was settled, Fredel wheeled her luggage out to the waiting taxi. As Fredel entered the taxi, the luggage was quickly loaded in. The taxi sped away. Bela wondered if Fredel gave a backward glance at the inn and the holiday they'd planned so excitedly for months. With Fredel gone, Bela's bond with Emmanuel deepened. She called the airline to cancel her return flight. She called her job to ask for an extension on her holiday for leave without pay. There were some things she had to take care of, matters to arrange, she said. How long did Bela need exactly? Bela said she wasn't sure as of yet, but would four months be acceptable? Her supervisor was surprised but gave his assent, adding that it mustn't be indefinite. When she hung up the telephone, Bela felt a sense of calmness and relief. Nothing felt rash or unplanned. In fact, she felt her natural tendency to plan, the very tendency that had planned this nearly flawless holiday to perfection, take over. This was, after all, what made her valuable enough to her employers that they would allow her this rarely granted leave-without-pay status. Bela knew they could easily have let her go. She hated to use the word fire with herself or others in the firm. There were plenty of others, far younger and more technologically savvy than herself, who would have happily taken the position. Who knows? They still might. Bela couldn't think about that at this point. That same day, she checked out of the inn and rented a small studio apartment three streets off the main village square. The kitchen was small but well-stocked, with pots and pans and cooking utensils. Bela cooked meals for Emmanuel, learning to master the local ingredients, the rice, beans, chicken, and the various spices and flavorings. She spent most of her mornings browsing through the market not far from the square where she first met Emmanuel. Sometimes he would suggest dishes or ingredients and occasionally ways to improve her cooking. Bela happily absorbed his feedback, surprised by her lack of defensiveness. Afterwards, they would slip, fall, or otherwise descend into Bela's bed. Their lovemaking seemed elaborate, choreographed by an invisible hand. Bela was surprised at Emmanuel's moves, his slate of hand never revealed until it was felt on her body. She never asked him about his previous lovers, presumably the sources of education for this expertise, just as he never asked her about Shia or the men that followed him. Even if Bela continued to reject terms such as madness or spell that Fredel used or suggested, she did begin to lose sense of time. The days fell into a rhythm every bit as pleasurable as her nights. She loved the market, the brightness of its colors, the richness of its fruit. The flowers called out to her. She always made sure to bring some home with her. 
Emmanuel could have brought unsold flowers home to her, but she preferred to purchase the ones in the market. These were less obviously romantic, bunched together in complementary variety and texture. She never thought to ask their names, although they were very different from the flowers she knew back at home. Never had she eaten, breathed, seen so powerfully in such full measure. Emmanuel asked nothing of her. He continued to work as a flower vendor and to help his mother with her baked goods business. Not pies exactly, but something like them, Bela gathered. She was never quite sure. She wasn't invited to meet any members of Emmanuel's family, and she never requested an invitation. Emmanuel never asked Bela for money, as Fredel had so crassly suggested. At night, he sought only to pleasure her, his release coming only after her own satisfaction. Emmanuel invariably left the studio apartment before dawn, sometimes earlier. Bela had never experienced a liaison, connection so effortless, one that asked so little of her and gave her so much. Everything she began to feel. The days bled into weeks and then months. Bela had long since passed the four months leave without pay period granted by her supervisor. She neglected even to call them. What did any of that matter now? Occasionally, while walking through the lanes of the market, the thought that Emmanuel might be in the village square speaking to another woman would flit through and linger in her mind, like the brightly colored lizards she sometimes noticed from her studio window. She let the thought remain in her mind. Sure, she could walk a few blocks to the square and spy on him, but then what? What could she do, after all? Bela's money supply was nearing its end. She now had to shop more carefully at the end of the day, when the vendors were more eager for sale and the products were cheaper. Her meals grew sparser, sometimes just bean and rice now. Emmanuel brought food from home at times. He never questioned her methods or her plans. They never discussed them at all. Not that Bela had plans anymore. She couldn't quite pinpoint when her drive to plan had vanished, or if it had slowly melted away in the sun. She tried to recall that earlier organized self, but found she could only make out its haziest outlines. And then these two proved undetectable. She drifted slowly through her days, buoyed only by the nighttime visits of Emmanuel, whose ardor and expertise remained undiminished. Sometimes she devoured the food he brought her. At other times, she stared at it blankly, uncomprehendingly. Sometimes she imagined that Fredel or Dovebert would come to rescue her from this dusty paradise. She dreamed that she would awaken in her apartment back home and look out at the rain descending plentifully on the red leaves of the autumn trees lining her block. Sometimes she dreamed that she was at Fredel's apartment, that they were sharing a Shabbos meal together with wine, challah, gefilte fish, matzo ball soup, and roasted chicken that she had cooked with minor variations every week for years before the divorce.
Bela would give Fredel the chicken leg, as she preferred. A rather burly man knocked on her door one day, interrupting her trance. He made sweeping gestures towards her and the studio apartment. Bela had struggled without success to master the local language, but she understood that her days in the studio were limited. The burly man tacked a notice to the door and left. Bela looked around in her cupboard, foraging for food, but the cupboard was bare. When had she last eaten? A light touch on her shoulder from Emmanuel awakened her. He carried her, now little more than skin and bones, no need to diet now, to a wagon linked to a dirty, white-gray mule. Instead of seating her in the wagon front seat, Emmanuel placed her on a bed of straw in the wagon itself. Bela felt the wagon lurch before she heard the rattling of the wheels and the clip-clop of the mule's hooves on the cobblestones. She wondered where Emmanuel was taking her, where she would presumably face some radical transition, perhaps even her end. To meet Emmanuel's family? Unlikely. The poorhouse? Were foreigners permitted there? Was she finally a tourist no more? Surely not the workhouse. Even in her current state, even with her improved culinary skills, Bela knew she wouldn't be of much use there. Potter's Field? Was she still alive? She touched her hand on her heart, felt her pulse to be sure. Her eyes wide to the heavens, Bela saw the tops of buildings and trees drift by overhead. The light was at its brightest now. Surely nothing terrible could happen to her in broad daylight out in the open. Or was the light in her mind? Surely Emmanuel would not let anything happen to her. She'd never wanted to ask many questions of him. She didn't want to be too inquisitive or nosy. She didn't want to break the magic of their connection with the commonplace. She wanted them, their love, to exist outside the sphere of negotiation of barter. And it had. They had succeeded. Still, Bela wished she knew Emmanuel better. She wished she found a way to know him. What did she really know of him? If Fredel had stayed, Bela would have learned more without having to ask. The wagon came to a sudden halt. Emmanuel appeared over her and placed flowers all around her. She saw that they were flowers from the market and the fields, ordinary flowers, not like the ones he sold from carefully cultivated flower farms for the romantic couples in the square. She was pleased by their wildness, their unexpected shapes. She felt encased by red and violet and pink and orange. Was there yellow, too? She looked around but didn't see any. Perhaps it was just above her head. She didn't have strength to look, even though she sensed its importance. Yellow would have brightened this pilgrimage. Yellow would have completed her. She felt Fredel return to her. 
she felt her love for Emmanuel reach its climax. In a bed of hay, surrounded by flowers, on a wagon moving to whereabouts unknown, Bela felt Emmanuel's love not in its acrobatic agility, but as a force field of magnetic density, enveloping her finally, fully, in its blackness. Thanks to Alice and Yermiahu for reading their stories today. Thanks to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart. And thanks to you for slowing down and listening up. Real quick, while we end here, there's a hashtag tripod campaign going on right now. That's T-R-Y-Pod, where podcasters are trying to get their listeners to spread the word about podcasts to their friends or family who still don't know what podcasts are. So if you're a fan of podcasts and you know someone who isn't, get them to try one. It doesn't have to be secondhand stories. It can be another great story-based podcast like This American Life or Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People or The Moth. Anything. Please help spread the word about podcasts. We'll be back with more stories in two weeks.